bless the reading of his word. So we're continuing in our series, Miracles in Red, and today we, we pick up on an exciting story. Um, Jairus, or Jairus, however you'd like to pronounce it, um, he's an interesting man. And we see this woman who's been suffering for how many years? Twelve years. And we see a 12-year-old daughter. So what I'm going to do today is um, I'm going to do a narrative sermon. And a narrative sermon, I've asked several of you, most of you have never heard of narrative sermon before, but what it is, it's where the speaker takes the role of the person in the text, uses a little bit of um, creative license, if you will, to kind of make the story come alive to the modern day listener. And um, it, it's one of those things that helps bring it to life. So this is not my normal speaking style, but hopefully you guys will enjoy it. And I like to mix things up. I think if church is predictable, then you guys sometimes check out, am I right? So sometimes it's good to keep it up. So, But for those of you who like points, I do have good news. I have points at the very end after Jarius is done with, with his story. So I'm going to take the role of Jarius four years after this event. And I want you guys, as we heard the scriptures, I want you guys to relive it as though you were going through it and listening to Jarius. So I want to welcome Jarius to the stage. Hey guys, I'm Jarius, and I appreciate you coming to visit the synagogue today. As you, as you know, I've been leading this synagogue for many years, and something happened four years ago that completely changed my life. Um, it's a really sad story. It starts off with my little girl. She had just turned 12. And up to this point, she was in good health and everything was going well. And all of a sudden, on a, on a village journey, she picked up some kind of cold and it turned into the flu and it just got worse and worse. So we, as a loving father, I frantically searched all the different doctors and nobody could have any cure for my little girl. Finally, a doctor told me to go to an, an, another village to talk to a specialist and this doctor couldn't cure her either. So I was at the point of desperation. And my little girl became so sick she couldn't get out of bed anymore. And she was, she's my princess. I call her princess. And as a, as a loving dad, I didn't know what to do. But my wife told me of a miracle worker in town by the name of Jesus. And Jesus has done so many miracles, my wife told me. And of course, being a synagogue ruler, I've heard about his miracles. In another adjacent synagogue in another town, he healed a man's withered hand. And word traveled, and I was like, wow, that's pretty amazing. And of course, some of the leaders were upset because he healed on the Sabbath day. He also cleansed some lepers. There's even this huge story out that Jesus stilled a storm. And that's still, um, I wasn't there, but his disciples say it's true. So I was like, what, what can it hurt? So I went to pursue Jesus, and he was on the other side of the sea. So I had to go by boat, and I searched him down. And this huge crowd of people was around Jesus. He, he's grown quite a following up to this point. And I went up to him, and I didn't care how dense the crowd was. I cut through the middle of it, and I begged Jesus. I fell at his feet, and I said, Jesus, you've got to understand, my little girl, she's just 12. And Jesus, she's my princess, and she's dying. Nobody can heal her, but Jesus, if you will just come, and you will lay your hands on her, she will be made whole. She will be made well. And to my surprise, Jesus decided to stop what he was doing with this big crowd, and he did an about-face and followed me back to my house. My faith had just risen so much. And I know a lot of the other synagogue rulers didn't believe Jesus, thought he was an imposter, but I really believe Jesus is the real deal. I believe this could be our Messiah. 
We'll see what happens. So as we were going back to my house, the, un, the unthinkable happened. This woman that she kind of has a reputation in the town as being unclean. In fact, we wouldn't allow her to worship at her synagogue because she's been bleeding for 12 years. And in their Jewish tradition, someone that has an issue of blood's unclean. And uh, she comes and she does the unthinkable. She grabs Jesus' garment. And Jesus stops. And he's looking around the crowd. And he says, who touched me? And the disciples and myself at this time are just like, Jesus, you need to keep going because if you stop for this lady, my little girl is going to die. We're kind of in the middle of a crisis here. I mean, what are you doing? And Jesus says to her daughter, your faith has made you whole. After she comes forward and tells Jesus the whole truth. And as, as she's doing this, I look up and I see a few people coming that I know from my household. One is a family member. One is a member of my, my synagogue. And I can tell by their faces. They were so upset. I could tell by their faces that the news is not good. And even while Jesus is speaking healing to this woman, these, these friends come and say, Jairus, you need to just give up. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher any longer? And at this point, folks, if I'm honest, my heart is broken. I feel like this woman has just stolen my miracle because my little girl, my little 12-year-old princess is supposed to get this healing. Not this lady. I mean, I'm sure she's amazing, but it's, it's my girl that needs healing. Who is this woman? I mean, she's violated all the Jewish laws. She's not supposed to be in a crowd, number one, because she's unclean. Everyone in the crowd potentially is unclean if they touch her. She's not supposed to touch a rabbi or a holy, holy leader. It's the unclean touching the clean. She's violated all the laws. And yet she gets healed, and here I am, a synagogue official, trying to do the right thing, trying to love on my family, trying to follow the rules. She gets the miracle. I don't. And folks, if I'm honest, I'm just broken. How could this woman do such a thing? And as I'm wrestling through this, Jesus looks at me and says, Do not fear, only believe. He dismisses what the... The people from my household say that she's dead. Jesus looks at me and says, do not fear, only believe. And at the moment when he tells that woman daughter, he calls her daughter, my heart just convicts. I realize that I am not being loving as I should be to this woman. I realize I'm probably having, in my my desperation, I'm having a bad attitude. So I ask the Lord to forgive me. And we continue on our journey back to my house. And we get up to my house. And all surrounding my house are a huge group of mourners. And they're wailing and mourning. I, I guess my wife in the synagogue has hired these people as professional mourners to help us through this death. But Jesus does the unthinkable. He tells them to stop mourning, stop weeping and wailing because my little princess is not dead. She's just sleeping. And what's, what's intriguing about this is their tears turn into jeers. They start laughing and mocking Jesus. These professional mourners are now laughing. And you know what Jesus does? He has none of it. He throws them out of the house. He says, ask them to leave. And he has only three of his disciples come in, Peter, James, and John. And as we go into the house, the mourners, Jesus is asked to leave. And it's just Peter, James, and John, Jesus, and my wife. He goes into the room where my little girl is. And by the way, this is my only daughter, so I'm just, I'm so heartbroken. And it seems like a moment, it seems like an eternity of silence. But Jesus looks at my little girl and says, Tali kumi, 
My little daughter, I say unto you, arise. And at that split second, she sits up in her bed. She looks at her mom. She looks at Jesus. She looks at me. And my little princess that was dead is now alive. And I'm dancing. I'm exciting because she has come back alive. It's been four years since this event. Jesus himself has died. And I had no problem believing about his resurrection because he raised my daughter from the dead. My little girl now is sweet 16. She's about to live the life that she couldn't have lived otherwise. I'm looking forward to the day for her meeting a young Jewish um, person that she's going to just fall in love with, a young Jewish man, and have a lot of babies, and have the white picket fence, and we cannot wait. And by the way, my synagogue, since this experience, has doubled in size. We are worshiping the true Messiah, the risen one. And four years later, his word still rings out to me. Do not fear, only believe. So no matter what you're going through today, the message to you is clear. Do not fear, only believe. Thanks for hearing my story. I'm going to hand it back over to Timothy. So, that was uh, Jairus' story. And a little, little bit about a narrative sermon, it, it, it makes the text contextualized, come alive, to if he were saying his story. Because the Bible doesn't give us all the nuances and details of the story, but you can imagine... I've got my daughter Kira here, almost five, she's turning five in December. You can imagine, dads, that you're a little girl. They say little girls wrap their dads around their finger. And I heard that all my life, but now I know why. It's so true. They have a place in your heart. So I can imagine my, if it was my only child, any child, I would have been heartbroken. So what I want to bring to you is, if you'll take out your listening guide, I have seven principles from this text. So this is kind of a hybrid sermon. You've got the narrative part, and here's the study part for those of you who like fill in the blanks. Um, I'm going to give you seven quick points about what do you do when it seems like someone cuts in on your miracle. Because if you look at the text, this is what you call a miracle sandwich, not the bread, but um, two miracles put together. And there's a mystery. A part of what intrigued me about this text is there's a little girl who's how old? Twelve years old. And there's a woman who's been suffering for how long? And they both encounter Jesus at the same time. So I'm just wondering if there's any connection with the twelve. So, but today, if you look at your outline, we're going to ask the question, what can you learn from this miracle? What, what do you do when it seems like someone steals your miracle? Number one, if you're experiencing some major crisis right now, you might be just a good candidate for a miracle. If you're experiencing some crisis you just might be a good candidate for a miracle. So think about the woman. This woman, we don't even know her name. So she wasn't very prestigious in the culture. All we know is she was marginalized by society. She had this issue of blood. And just so you know, in a Jewish culture, they were very ceremonial clean. So if someone had a perpetual bleeding issue, they weren't allowed to go to church because they were ceremonial and clean. You actually couldn't touch objects they sat on because it would make you ceremonial unclean. Aren't you glad we don't live in the, under the old covenant? Because um, it, it would just be so hard to function in the society. So here you have this woman, and Jesus meets her right where she's at. Her crisis turned into something beautiful. A crisis just may be an opportunity in disguise. And that's what we see from this woman. And here you have Jairus. Jairus is a synagogue ruler. He wasn't a rabbi or anything, but he was, he was the person that would officiate the rabbis that would come. He would watch over the, the synagogue. So he had a leadership position in the church. 
And by most accounts, people would consider him wealthy. People would consider him prestigious. He would be considered one of the elite. So you kind of have the polar opposites. You've got a, a person with great wealth, most likely, with great influence. And you've got a woman, the Bible says, that she spent all she had on doctors. And what's interesting, a little side note, Mark says that she grew worse and she suffered much harm. Luke, being a doctor, doesn't mention um, some of the details because uh, he had a favorable, uh, he wanted to have a favorable response to doctors. But, but the point is, no matter how much money you have, there are some things only Jesus can do. So we see that if you have a major crisis today, no matter if you're poor or wealthy, no matter if nobody knows your name or everybody knows your name, the only thing that matters is you're famous in your father's eyes. And what's beautiful about this text, Jesus calls the unknown, unnamed woman daughter. I think that's beautiful. The creator of the universe, giving her significance by saying, you're my daughter. I don't care if anyone knows your name. I know your name. Number two, another lesson we can learn is nobody can take away your miracle. Nobody can take it away. Only you can forfeit it. What's interesting, if I was Jairus, or if you want to say Jairus, however you want to pronounce it, I... I would say I would be troubled. I would, I would be, if it was my daughter that was in trouble, I would be ticked off that this person had just called in and got my miracle. You guys sense that in the text? Because while Jesus was healing her, the news came at that moment that his daughter had died. So what do you do when it seems like someone's getting your blessing? Someone's getting in on your miracle? I think many Christians, we can suffer from what's called the poverty syndrome. And what the poverty syndrome is, there's only one pie, and we all have to fight for our slice of the pie. And we're taught that in the world. You've got to fight for your peace. Jesus presents another alternative that we can see is the blessing mentality, that God gives us each your own daily bread. I don't have to fight for your piece of the bread. I don't have to fight for what's yours. That's God's blessings on your life. So what's beautiful about this text we see Even though it seemed like the woman stole Jairus' miracle, Jesus still had a miracle for Jairus. So if you've ever felt in life that people have gotten ahead of you, they've got the job promotion that you thought belonged to you, they've got whatever you're desiring that it didn't happen, just realize God has something just for you that no one can take. Only you can forfeit it. If Jairus would have said, forget this, I'm going back home, I don't need you, Jesus, his daughter would remain dead. But Jairus persevered in faith. So realize that nobody can take away your miracle. I don't know who that is for today, but that encourages me. Nobody can take what God has for me. Amen. Number three, and we alluded to this a little bit earlier, God cares for everyone. From the social outcasts to the most respected and elite. doesn't matter who you are. It's level field at the cross. It doesn't matter if you have great resources or if you have nothing at all. Jesus cares for you equally. And he died for you just the same. And that's the beautiful thing about Christianity. That's what I love even about this church. We can come from different backgrounds, different economics, different experiences, and we're all equal. And we're all to be treated equally, no matter if you have great or little. If you're known in the town or you're no, you're, no one knows your name, what matters is God loves you and so do we, Arden. So we're a church that welcomes everybody, no matter what your background. Amen. Number four. Faith is the essential key to unlock God's potential in your life. We have to believe with the believers. 
instead of doubt with the doubters. Something in the text I think so intriguing to me, if you look back at verse 36 where he says to Jairus, um, do not doubt, only believe. Something, both, in both cases in the text, whenever the people are coming from Jairus' household, in the original language, it, it almost seems like Jesus overlooked what they were saying. And he tried to refocus Jairus. Don't listen to the doubters. Just listen to me. And whenever he came to the household and all these mourners, and they, they end up jeering Jesus, you know what he did? He asked the, the mockers to leave the house. So here's the principle. There's going to be people in your life that cause you to doubt. You need to learn how to silence the doubters in your life. Because doubters diminish faith. Only when you put faithful people in your life, they stoke your faith, they encourage you. So many times we spend too much time in the land of the doubters. What you need to do is surround yourself with faithful people. You notice Jesus took Peter, James, and John with them. We see this throughout Scripture. Peter, James, and John, they had their share of faults, but they were faithful people. They were people that were willing to follow Jesus and they were even willing to give their lives to him. We, we know from church history about Peter being crucified for Jesus. We know about John being exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And most, most of the apostles were martyred, with the exception of John. So they were, they were willing to be faithful. I want to ask you the question, who in your life causes you to doubt your faith so much to where your faith is minimized? I'm not saying that you get rid of those people in your life. But what I am saying is you don't allow them to influence you. Put in your inner circle the people that are faithful and faith-filled. The ones that will stoke your fire to believe. Look, look back at verse 36. I want to read that again. I think this is one we should memorize. As soon as Jesus heard the words that were spoken, remember the reality, his daughter was dead. What did Jesus say? Do not be afraid, only believe. And I think that's the words that the Lord would have Arden first to hear today. No matter what you're going through, a financial crisis, a health crisis, no matter what, do not be afraid, only believe. I think that's, that's something we've got to wrap our mind around. Number five, and we mentioned this, in order for your faith to grow, you have to silence the doubters. We mentioned how it's twice in the text. We've got to silence the doubters. And finally, number six, this is the intriguing thing, 12 years. And I asked my dad to do research and ask some of you to think about it. And truthfully, I didn't find any conclusive answer. So this is what I call a sanctified speculation or a sanctified application. So consider this as application. Uh, we know that 12 throughout the Bible, it occurs, by the way, 187 times in the Bible, the number 12. And 12 generally refers to God's power, God's government, and God's authority. So God's Power, God's government, and God's authority. It also can refer to completeness. So let me ask you guys a few question, questions. How many tribes were there? Twelve. When Jesus chose apostles, he chose how many? Twelve. Good. You guys are good. Um, in Revelation, how many thousand people are going to be saved from each tribe? Twelve thousand from each tribe. The New Jerusalem is going to have how many gates? Twelve, right? And how big will the city be? That's a quick trick question. <laughs> 144 cubits high, which is 12 multiplied by itself. So the number 12, I want you to follow me, represents, not always in Scripture, but often it represents God's power, 
God's authority and you see God's government, like the 12 tribes and 12 apostles. So what does this little 12-year-old girl have to do with this woman that was suffering for 12 years? Another way to reframe it is this. The moment this little girl was born, the older lady began to die. She began to suffer, hemorrhage blood. And what you see in this text is quite intriguing that the little girl that was living, all of a sudden she died. And the, the woman that was dying, all of a sudden she began to live. And you see a divine reversal. So the way, the way I put it in my notes here, and I think this is on your outline, the healing touch of Jesus is so powerful that the dying may start living. And the living need to realize that apart from Christ, they're really dying. So you could say these people symbolize. Um, it symbolizes people that are really living. They may not realize it, but spiritually they're dying. And there are some people that are physically dying, but they're in Christ. They're really living because God's got a new body for them one day. So what I want you to get here is the number 12. What this represents for the little girl, if she was beginning to live and she died, but Jesus has power and Jesus has authority over death. So for those of us who fear death, I want to point you to the little girl that died and she rose again. The number 12 signifies God's power over death in this case. So we don't, as Christian, you don't have to fear death. In fact, death for the Christian is actually graduation. We might we not realize it. We're not in the land of the living going to the land of the dying. But from an eternal perspective, we're in the land of the dying going to the land of the living. So if you and I die as Christians, we actually begin to live like never before. So that's actually good news. Look at your neighbor and say, that's good news. And the woman that has this issue of blood. And I want you to notice that for 12 years, here's a scenario. I don't want to get graphic, but for 12 years, she couldn't really get out in public a lot. She didn't smell too good. Um, the people thought thought of her as unclean. They didn't want to be socially around her. She was an outcast. So Jesus' power and authority is this. For those who feel like you're outcasts, for those who feel like you're far from God, if you will just surrender to Him, He will bring you into a family. It's called the family of God. So the number 12 represents God's power to take those who are orphans, those who are widows, those who feel like, man, my divorce wrecked me, and his power is going to say, that's not the end of you. I'm going to take away the shame and reproach. I'm going to take away that which has held you down and know that the best is yet to come. I'm going to bring you into a family. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to, do, I'm going to undo what the devil did to you. I'm going to give you health and healing and wholeness. And keep in mind, this is from an eternal perspective. God doesn't promise to heal everyone this side of eternity. But in Christ, the good news is one day all of us are healed with a new glorified body. So in conclusion, which one, do you, which one symbolizes you? Do you feel like the woman that just, for whatever reasons, you feel like something has isolated you, or marginalized you from your family and friends? What would Jesus say to you today? Would He say that I love you, I call you daughter, I call you son? Is something keeping you back from living your life that you need Jesus to step in? Some of you may identify with a little girl. You thought you were living, and now you realize that you really need true life that only Christ can bring. 
And you may be physically alive, but you may be spiritually dead. And Jesus offers new life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And God, I thank you for Jairus. I thank you that he symbolizes, God, you love. You love everyone from the poor and down and out to the rich and respected. We love everybody. And Father, as a church, help us to have a heart for everybody, no matter where they're coming from. Right now, just with no one looking around, how many would say, Timothy, uh, the message spoke to me today. Pray that God's power and God's authority and God's completeness would come in my life in some area. That's you. Just raise your hand. No one looking around. Father, you see the hands. Maybe there's someone here that needs a physical touch. I pray that just as you did a miracle then, God, we know you can still do it today. And Father, if there be anyone here that's not spiritually alive, they're living, but they're really spiritually dead, I pray that they would pray a prayer like this. Jesus, I need you to raise me from the dead spiritually. I need you to step out of heaven and into my heart. I need you to forgive me of my sins. Jesus, I make you my Lord and my Savior. Father, thank you so much for all that you've done and all that you're going to do We give you thanks and we give you praise in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. This time we're having the hymn of invitation. If you need to make a decision, we encourage you to come down. If you want to write it on the connection card in front of you, my next step is write it down. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to pray over these cards. And uh, I'll be at the front. Brother Adam will be at the front. At the conclusion, we'll have our offering. And we ask all the members to stay for a short business meeting. So if you will, please stand. And respond as the Lord leads.